0: This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. Replacing a legend is always hard. No matter how good you are or what you accomplish, it never quite measures up. For example, can you remember who coached the UCLA men's basketball team after John Wooden retired? Or... Who replaced Martin Luther King Jr. at Ebenezer Baptist Church, or Diana Ross in the Supremes, or Bill Murray on Saturday Night Live? Replacing a legend is often a thankless job that's doomed for failure. Israel's King David was just such a legend. He was the archetypal heroic monarch. Under his reign, Israel prospered as never before or since. And so it's no wonder that Solomon, to believed to be in his early 20s when his father David died, was overwhelmed with the prospects of becoming Israel's next king. Now the Bible tells us that Solomon was wise. And so he was, at least wise enough to ask for help. Somewhat Solomon knew that the great secret to his father's unparalleled success sprang from David's relationship with God. Therefore, Solomon, in an extravagant display of worship, called upon God to guide him as God had guided his father, David. That was a brilliant idea, and it worked. God was so pleased with Solomon's act of worship that God appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, What shall I give you? Ask me for anything you want. Now talk about hitting the lottery. How would you respond if God said to you, I'll give you whatever you want. What if you were in your 20s? What would you ask for? Solomon's response reveals the secret of his great wisdom. He declined all of the really sweet goodies that we think would make for a flourishing life, and he asked for an understanding heart. He wanted a gift that would enhance his ability to serve the people he ruled over. He longed for the kind of wisdom with which he could guide the people under his care with justice and compassion. Well, now, after 50 years of aggressively pursuing a spiritual life and studying sacred texts from multiple faith traditions, I've come to conclude this is exactly the best of what religion has to offer all of us, a path to grow in wisdom and compassion. The twin requisites in becoming most fully human Alive and awake. But how do we define this kind of wisdom? Well, I, I'm reminded of Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. In 1964, he was uh, deciding a case on hardcore pornography, and he could only say, I know it when I see it. <laughs> and I think compassionate wisdom is like that. We know it when we see it. It eludes defining because it's difficult to codify. The wise and compassionate choice in one particular setting could easily be oppressive in another. Our contemporary struggle with the issue of abortion is one example. Immigration is another. One size fits all solutions just don't exist. And I suspect true compassionate wisdom is something that must be experienced rather than explained. Now, when I think of wise people there's several ingredients i notice about them which seem to contribute to their compassionate wisdom and there's four of these and simply they are they've made friends with solitude they live lives of service to others they they have an ability to see through complexity and they're humble now when it comes to solitude i don't mean that they simply spend a lot of time alone and that guarantees you'll become wise but I believe that solitude is fertile soil from which wisdom can grow. The, the great Chinese sage Lao Tzu wrote, To understand others is to be knowledgeable. To understand yourself is to be wise. Learning to spend time alone and quiet, reflecting and contemplating on your life, is a learned skill. For, now, for some, this can be very scary. Most of us are afraid of taking such a focused look inside for what we may find to be in there. Maybe that's why our culture presents endless opportunities to avoid being alone and quiet. I think of T.S. Eliot's wonderful line from The Four Quartets, we are distracted from distraction by distractions. Now, solitude is simply more than being alone and quiet. It, It involves intentionally looking deeply into my life and exploring who I am, what I'm doing, why I do what I do, Now, many spiritual teachers call this type of exploration contemplation. As I say, the spiritual voices I trust have spent significant amounts of time in this type of exercise. Now, whether it's called prayer or meditation or reflection or contemplation, I don't care. When someone has plumbed their own depths and they speak, they're a voice and not an echo. And their words not only tease our minds They pierce our souls. Now, another aspect of the kind of wisdom I trust is that it always seems to be focused for the benefit of others. Again, Lao Tzu taught, the sage accumulates nothing. Having used what he had for others, he has even more. The way of man and woman is to act on behalf of others and not to compete with them. Now this is exactly what Solomon was seeking, the kind of compassionate wisdom with which he could serve the people under his care. Similarly, Jesus, the Jewish rabbi from Nazareth, proclaimed, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Authentic wisdom is for the benefit of others. I am always suspicious of those who present their own truth in order to build their brand or name recognition. Now, by seeing through the complexity of things, I mean the kind of wisdom that avoids simply presenting one side of complex issues. The wonderful Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh has said, every view is the wrong view if it is presented as the only view. Wise teachers are able to see obstacles from various viewpoints and able to discern the merits of competing arguments Such sages are not only comfortable with, but they rely on paradox to express their wisdom. They avoid either-or black-and-white thinking. Also, they're not argumentative folks. They seem to trust in the power of the wisdom they offer to be heeded by those who have ears to hear. Now, there's a story told about Socrates, who is believed to have been one of the wisest men in the Western world. A friend of his went to see the famous oracle at Delphi and asked, is there anyone wiser than Socrates? And the oracle replied, no. When Socrates heard about this, he couldn't believe it. So he went out to interview all the supposed wise men in Athens. And after those interviews, Socrates concluded he was wiser than the other men because he did not pretend to know what he didn't know. Unlike the other wise ones, he knew his own limits. He humbly accepted what he did not know. And this is the final trait I see in those who are wise. They're humble. Now, while these are the four characteristics I detect in wise spiritual teachers, I also have noticed three methods that they employ to transmit their wisdom. They embrace paradox, they ask questions, and they tell stories. Now, whether or not you agree with my wisdom criteria, the real question of importance is how do we become wise? I've come to believe that the road to wisdom goes through the valley of suffering. Those times of disorientation that I've talked about on previous podcasts that are fertile soil. For the fruit of wisdom to come forth. And in our next podcast, I'll share one of those disorienting experiences that contributed to whatever wisdom I now have. As always, thanks for allowing me to join you on your journey for these moments today. As a concluding thought, I've pulled up something from Sacred Space, which is a website uh, operated by the Jesuits, which is a group of Catholic priests in Ireland. And uh, they write, Often it is from the failures in our lives that wisdom comes. How? Well, when we recover from the attendant blackness in, in a spirit of peace, we reflect back on what has happened. We can learn something about ourselves and about our life, something we had not seen before or had not held into account at the crucial time. It's in our sufferings, it's in our uh, failures that we can gain more self-understanding, the ability to see the wider picture, and the courage to be patient in difficult circumstances.